Russia, Russia, Russia. It's been the story that has defined the Trump presidency from the start, driven by hard evidence that the Kremlin's intelligence services mounted an unprecedented campaign to interfere in the 2016 American election, stealing emails, dumping them through WikiLeaks, all in order to torment Hillary Clinton and help elect Donald Trump president of the United States. But now a new story about Russian misbehavior has broken, arguably more shocking than any that has come before. As the New York Times first reported, and since confirmed by the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, the Russian GRU, the country's military intelligence arm, was paying bounties to the Taliban to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan. We'll discuss what that means with Michael McFall, the former U.S. ambassador to Moscow under President Obama, and we'll talk to cybersecurity expert Thomas Ridd about his new book about the long history of Russian active measures on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I got to say, the uh, paying bounties to the Taliban to kill Americans, uh, this one, I think, stunned a lot of people. The reports are that U.S. intelligence first picked this up some time ago last year. And as the intelligence came together, largely from folks on the ground, military intelligence on the ground in Afghanistan, it made its way up to the highest levels of the National Security Council, but not apparently, according to the White House, the president himself. Well, I mean, let's see about that. There were reports that it made its way into the presidential daily briefing, the so-called PDB. I don't know. As though Trump reads those? Well, I mean, that's what I was going to say. You know, any other president, uh, if it's in the PDB, that by definition means it goes to the president. Uh, It's called uh, the president's (laughs) daily brief. Exactly. Uh, This president uh, apparently... um, likes to see intelligence briefings uh, with, you know, drawings and pictures and not a lot of words from what I can gather. Look, this intelligence clearly was finished enough, finished being the term that intelligence analysts use, that there was a debate going on about what to do about it. What should the U.S. policy be in response? And they talked about, you know, a diplomatic complaint. They talked about further sanctions. You know, you don't start figuring out exactly how to punish your enemy for doing something like this unless you believe that the intelligence is is accurate. So it just doesn't hold water, water. either. Uh, well, that, that, that Trump wouldn't be briefed. I, I take a, a very different view. No, no, on no, this no, no. We'll- not that not that Trump uh, wouldn't be briefed. Either Trump was briefed or he wasn't briefed, and that is a, a dereliction of, of duty, a shocking one. Right. Yeah, look, my view on that is knowing how Trump 
is prone to paroxysms of rage about anything to do with Russia and Putin because he views everything through the prism of the 2016 election which and the Mueller investigation, which he views as the Russia hoax. So anytime folks come to him with evidence of Russian misbehavior, he blows up and, and views it as politically uh, motivated and he doesn't want to hear it. So I think it's entirely plausible given his long track record on this, that the senior national security team chose not to brief him knowing how he would likely react and knowing that he would resist any sort of, of U.S. response to Russia targeting American soldiers. You know what I say to that? So what? It, that the president's going to blow up. I mean, you know, the Russians are targeting U.S. service members in Afghanistan. They are uh, paying money to have them killed. And the national security advisor or other top foreign policy and intelligence officials in the Trump administration aren't going to bring it up with the president because they're scared of him. Well, that's easy for you to say on this podcast, but uh, I want to see you go into the Oval Office and, uh, and while you're working in the White House and tell it to Trump and survive uh, more than a day or two. But uh, no, I take your point. And I agree with you that if the White House is telling the truth and the president was never told about this, it raises, if anything, more questions than if he had been brief. I mean, um, their line is that they didn't tell him because... The intelligence hasn't been completely verified that the intelligence community, there wasn't a consensus within the intelligence community that it was it was accurate. And if that a, were the, a, a competent president would want to know what that intelligence right. debate, if it was a debate, was all about and how strong the evidence was. And he would question the intel briefers about it because it's clear that you have to that this is a factor in formulating your policy with Moscow. And it is worth pointing out that and look at the timeline here. This is reported to have gone up to the National Security Council in late March and starting at the end of March, March 30th, uh, Putin and Trump talk on the telephone. They have five calls over a three week period. They're talking about oil prices. Uh, they're talking about the COVID-19. Uh, they're talking about a lot of matters relating to the U.S.-Russia relationship. And if this didn't come up, if Trump was actually kept in the dark about what may have been Putin's most outrageous or Russia's most outrageous attack on Americans yet, that is pretty telling in and of itself. It, it didn't seem like, um, you know, the standard for when you tell the president about, uh, you know, some some like intelligence that you learn overseas in, say, a country like Ukraine about, say, a potential uh, presidential uh, election rival like Joe Biden, like, you know, that Trump wouldn't want uh, that information completely verified before he was briefed on that by Rudy Giuliani, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we know the very high strict standards that uh, Trump applies to any reports he gets uh, about uh, foreign adventures. Anyway, a lot to talk about here. Yeah, um, I was going to say, we got a couple of great guests on Russia 
to talk about this story and to talk about Russian active measures and other kinds of intelligence operations that the Russians have been doing for decades, actually for more than a century. But before we get to that, just one other piece of, I think, very significant news that broke today on Monday as we record this podcast, which is a major uh, Supreme Court decision that went against the conservatives and that was a a victory for pro-choice forces in this country. And that is this case out of Louisiana uh, that means that many abortion clinics in Louisiana and really um, across the country will remain open. And what's really significant about uh, this decision is that once again, Chief Justice John Roberts was in the majority on the liberal side, and he is therefore, I think, cementing himself as the swing justice on this Supreme Court, the successor to Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, except that he is the chief justice. And I don't think that has happened in a very long time where you had a chief justice who emerged as the swing justice. And equally important, I think, is I think this Uh, strongly suggests that uh, John Roberts um, is not likely to overturn Roe versus Wade. Once again, in this decision, he cited stare decisis. There was a another Supreme Court case that ruled in a similar fashion. And so Justice Chief Justice Roberts' view is that that is settled law, stare decisis, meaning to stand by that which is decided. And, you know, we, we can't say for sure what he would do in a case that squarely sought to overturn Roe versus Wade, but I think this is a pretty strong evidence that he that he would not be a vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. So you know, if the current if the current court stays as is, which of course is going to depend on who wins the election, I think that means that Roe versus Wade is here to stay. You know, back in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, if you drove through certain parts of America, particularly in what we now view as uh, ruby red states, you'd see impeach Earl Warren signs, uh, billboards, right? And I'm fully expecting uh, sometime soon we're going to start seeing impeach John Roberts billboards in certain areas because the conservative fury over what they will view as a betrayal from a judge, a Supreme Court justice they thought would be a solid, reliable, dependable vote has not emerged. And Trump will have no problem problem at all going after Chief Justice Roberts, which he has done many times before and notably in the 2016 election because Trump did not appoint uh, Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts. He did appoint Neil Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, both of whom were in the minority in this case. So I think, you know, maybe maybe we'll see in the coming days a tweet from uh, from uh, Donald Trump suggesting that uh, Chief Justice Roberts be impeached. All right, let's get back to Russia and our guests. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. Okay, we now have with us Michael McFall, the former U.S. ambassador to Moscow and the author of the book From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. Ambassador, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So this is a pretty wild story that broke in the last few days about the Russians paying bounties to the Taliban to kill American soldiers. What do you make of it? Well, it's shocking if true, obviously. 
you know, we'll get into what we know and what we don't know. And I'm always careful and nervous about commenting on intelligence when we don't know all the facts. But so far, the original New York Times story has not been refuted by anybody. It's been confirmed by several other outlets. And the facts are pretty horrible. If Vladimir Putin is paying Taliban fighters to kill American soldiers, that represents an escalation, I would say, in tensions that have already been escalating for several years. And it also represents an escalation in what I would call the rogue nature of Putin's foreign policy over the last several years. You know, it's one thing to have tensions between countries based on differences. It's another thing to go outside of the international system entirely, the rules, the norms, the procedures, the laws. And I think you've seen that really beginning with annexation in Ukraine in 2014. You've seen that escalation. Uh, and this perhaps is one more step in that escalation. Ambassador, we'll obviously get into how the Trump administration dealt with this, whether the president's saying that he wasn't briefed on it. What do you make of that? But before we do, I mean, I just want to try to understand, like, what what is Putin's game here if this happened? I mean, what would be in it for him to kill a few Americans, you know, American service members at a time when, you know, the U.S. is already negotiating a, a deal to get out anyway? Well, I'd say two things. One very big but important to always remember, that Vladimir Putin considers the United States of America his enemy. It doesn't matter what nice words Trump might say about him or, or, or others. He has fundamentally decided, and it wasn't always this way. We could go back in history. His views have changed over time. I first met him in the spring of 1991, for instance. His worldview was some, somewhat different then. But, but today, he thinks we're the enemy. He thinks we're out to get him. He thinks we're trying to undermine him, especially the deep state, the CIA, you know, the intelligence agencies, trying to overthrow regimes we don't like around him, and including his own regime. And when I was the U.S. ambassador in Moscow, 2012 to 14, he believed that we were fomenting revolution against his regime. I used to think it was a cynical view. I left Moscow thinking, no, this is what this guy believes, right? So remember, that's his analytic framework. We're the enemy. And so anything he can do to weaken us, he's willing to do. And, and again, I'm just, I don't know the facts. I want to keep saying that. I'm just speculating based on my long interactions and writing about him. But for him to see us bogged down in, in Afghanistan, that is a good thing, not a bad thing. And as we're about to cut a deal, deal with the Taliban, I could see very easily them making the argument Let's pump some money into this to keep this thing going, to derail this peace negotiation. That will keep the Americans bogged down in Afghanistan. And from his definition of Russian national interest, not mine and not a lot of other Russians, but from his definition, that would be serving Russia's national interest. You know, what's particularly striking about this, and you write about this in, in your book, is it wasn't always so especially on Afghanistan, because you before you became ambassador in 2012, you were on the National Security Council during the era of the reset with Russia relations when Obama was trying to improve relations with Russia. And one, as I remember it, one of the big uh, success stories that you touted under the reset was that the Russians were going to help with U.S. refueling for shipments of arms and personnel to Afghanistan. That's right. One of the first 
agreements that President Obama and President Medvedev signed, I was there in the Kremlin, was a lethal transit agreement uh, so that we could transit lethal equipment through Russia. It was part of something called the Northern Distribution Network. When we came into office in 2009, it had just started under Bush. Uh, and by the time I left the White House, it was over 50% of our supplies to our soldiers in Afghanistan went through that northern route. And you can't get to Afghanistan through the north without going through Russia. So at that moment in time, under President Medvedev, I need to underscore, not Prime Minister Putin, they thought that fighting the Taliban and supporting our efforts was in Russia's national interest. That has changed now, I think, over time. So why did it change? Well, one is that Putin and Medvedev had different worldviews. And I think in America and the United States and in my academic world, we too quickly always say, oh, Medvedev was Putin's puppet. He had no power. He didn't do anything. I have a very different view. I, I dealt with both of those guys up clo close and personal, sometimes on the same day. And they had different worldviews. Uh, Medvedev saw Russia's long-term future as being part of the West and cooperating with the West. Putin equivocated. That's what I was saying earlier, right? He, you know, he had one foot in, one foot out. September 11th happened, and then he thought, okay, we have a common enemy here. We can work together. Then he felt betrayed by Bush because of the color revolution in Georgia and Ukraine in 2004. And then he kind of checked out and let Medvedev do the reset for a while. And it was only when there were popular uprisings, first in the Arab Spring, right, first in the Middle East, against an ally of his, President Assad. And then that same year, remember, 2011, that same year, there was a popular uprising against Putin. And that's when he blamed us. And I think that's when he went in this very radical, anti-American, anti-Western, I would say anti-liberal institutional uh, path that he's been on ever since. So let's talk about how the Trump administration dealt with this. You oversaw Russia policy on the NSC. As Mike said, you were also ambassador in Moscow. If this intelligence had come to you, and let's acknowledge that there is a dispute as to whether the president was briefed or not, but if the intelligence had come to you and was briefed at high levels inside the White House, what would you have done? What would have happened? What should have happened? Well, first, right, I was in the, administ the Obama administration for the first three years. And for better or for ill, I think mostly for better, but some people have criticized us, we had a lot of regular order. That's what one of my bosses, Dennis McDonough, used to call it, uh, in the National Security Council process, right? So first of all, we had something called the PDB, and that happened every day. That didn't happen just on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And that was a shot where the intelligence community came in to brief the president, not filtered by political appointees like me, right? So PDB happened every day. We would prepare talking points for the national security advisor to give him a political perspective or a policy perspective, but they would come in every day and brief the president. So something sounds like that did not happen here. That's number one. Number two, I would have been briefed on this as a senior official at the National Security Council, of course. And it sounds like there was a meeting in March of people at the National Security Council. We would have talked about it and, and interrogated the validity of it and talked about the trade-offs it might have with respect to other national security uh, objectives we were seeking. Uh, but then here's third, another piece of it, which is why it's somewhat confusing the various alibis that the Trump administration has given. In between the time that this meeting happened and now, 
there's been a couple of rather major policies that have been decided vis-a-vis -vis Russia. One was to invite Putin to the G8, G7 summit, uh, and two was to withdraw troops from Germany. In the Obama administration, if, if we were sitting in the White House Situation Room, either with the president or with the National Security Advisor chairing that session, of course, intelligence uh, that we're talking about would have been presented as part of the policy decision-making about those really big decisions, right? So that's where there would have been no excuse to say, well, I didn't really know about it. Uh, the intelligence community in my time would have made sure that all foreign policy makers would have known about that intelligence. Well, what if the intelligence was not sort of fully verified, or at least uh, there wasn't a like a, a total consensus with the intelligence community? In other words, there are just some dissenting voices. Would the president still typically be briefed on that intelligence? Would it end up in the PDB, even if it, it even if there were some dissenting voices? Well, again, I can't speak about intelligence because, <laughs> you know, it's against the law. And I take that very seriously. I would say generally, however, uh, President Obama was somebody that devoured information, secret and otherwise, and nobody would have hidden this from him because there was a disagreement about him. That's mm -hmm. definitely not the way that we rolled. We wanted, especially, let's be clear, we are talking about some very dramatic intelligence here. This is not some marginal thing in some marginal country. We are talking about a leader of a country ordering American soldiers to be killed. That just in the Obama administration, I just can't imagine anybody would say, well, it's not really clear, so let's not bring this to the attention of the president. If he was about to call that guy, right? Remember, there was also a presidential phone call to Putin. Uh, we would have wanted President Obama to be aware of that. In yeah. fact, I can now, I won't tell you the instances, but I can remember briefing President Obama before phone calls and presenting him with rather dramatic intelligence about one of his interlocutors that was uncomfortable for him. But we wanted him to know that. Yeah. I know that we, uh, I remember we did a, a story, kind of an anatomy of a foreign, of a call to a, from the president to a foreign leader. And it's a very elaborate process. I mean, the NS, NSC spends many hours, you know, preparing for that and briefing. And that's an interesting point. Yeah, I, I should point out that it wasn't just one phone call. I'm looking at a Voice of America story that just uh, popped today that um, starting on March 30, uh, when uh, Putin and Trump spoke by phone, they had five calls over a three-week period. Now, this is, remember, that's starting at the end of March after this intelligence has been elevated to the National Security Council level. But I guess my question to you, Ambassador, is, OK, let's assume for the moment that the intelligence is on the money here and this is real. What is the appropriate response under these circumstances? Well, first of all, the, the Trump administration has to get their story right. You know, uh, the NSC press spokesperson says we're looking at the veracity of this intelligence, not denying that it existed. The president says he wasn't briefed on it. You know, I would just hope we could find out who knew and what did they know. That would be useful. You know, I could give you a long list of things I think should be done, but I want, I, I'm not going to bore your listeners with that. Well, give us a short list of things well, that should be, be done. Well, they won't be done under President Trump, and that's the point I want to make. I, I think this is really important to understand the context here, which is this is not the first time 
that Putin has done something outrageous and gotten no response from Trump. President Trump very consistently for four years has never criticized President uh, Putin about anything. He lets other people do it, and even his administration should get credit for some of the things they push back on him. But Trump himself never, not once that I know, that I can remember, has pushed back on anything Trump, uh, Putin has done. And contrarily, when there's an intelligence divide on things, he's taken Putin's side, including most famously in, in Helsinki in 2018, when he stood before the world and said, well, you know, my guys have briefed me on this, but I just talked to this guy and I believe him. And I think that's important because that is my prediction for the way he's going to handle this situation. But the number one thing would be just to reverse that. Uh, I think if uh, the intelligence is, is confirmed, the, the easy baby step would be for President Trump himself, not through a press spokesperson, not through something written by somebody like me. I did that lots, lots of times when I worked at the White House. But for him to say on the record, this is outrageous. President Putin is responsible for this. Even that act itself would be a dramatic shift in policy. My personal theory on this is, and I think there's, you know, it's backed up by the record, is that it may well be that he wasn't briefed precisely because his senior advisors know how he would react or not react. He views any information about Russian misbehavior as somehow calling attention to, you know, what he views as the Russia hoax that has tainted his election. So he doesn't want to hear about it. So they purposely may well have withheld this information from him. Well, Michael, you're the expert on that more than I am. I have, I think you're at, that, that sounds very plausible to me, of course, and many other former Trump administration officials have, have confirmed that, including some that work out here with me these days, uh, here at Stanford and Hoover. Oh, do you have McMaster out there, by the way? Uh, yes, we have General McMaster and General Mattis. Is he uh, talking these days about his uh, time in the White House? Well, off the record, he talks a lot. Whether he would talk to you or not, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, that's often the case, but go ahead. General Mattis, right. more and more, as you know as well as I do, uh, mm -hmm. has been saying some more things. Uh, but here's what I would say. I think that's very plausible. And one of the reasons I think that's a plausible explanation is because somebody in the intelligence community took the really, you know, think about it. You Again, Michael, you know better than I do, but to take the step to leak this would be, you know, top secret at its lowest. So this kind of information, and leak it to the New York Times, uh, that is a really dangerous step. That somebody decided it was so important that they were feeling frustrated that it probably wasn't getting to the president. So that suggests to me, also by the way, there, that this uh, this intelligence is pretty credible because. I don't think you want to go to jail for things that are just kind of, well, touchy-feely and maybe didn't happen or didn't. Yeah. Another aspect of our own reporting on this is that, you know, we talked before about the sort of evolution of uh, uh, in, in Russian behavior towards the West and 
towards the U.S. that uh, this didn't start overnight. Uh, within for the last several years, there's been reporting that the Russians have been arming the Taliban, have been providing financial assistance to the Taliban, and we're told even as early as a few years ago, encouraging attacks on the United States. I we don't have confirmation that there was bounties being paid two or three years ago, but that there wasn't reporting about encouragement for attacks of these kind, of this kind. Well, I've seen that reporting, and I, I, it, it doesn't surprise me because of what I said earlier about Putin's just, I mean, he is obsessed with the United States. I just, I, I want to underscore that. You just have to understand how obsessed he is with us. He thinks we destroyed the Soviet Union. He thinks we keep Russia down. He thinks you know, he would be the leader of, of the world if not for us. And so any chance he has to push back on us, he seizes those opportunities, including, mm -hmm. by the way, supporting Trump. Remember, in his world, he thinks Trump is an ideological ally. It's the deep state. It's people like me that are the enemy. So, but wait a second. If if Trump he views as his ally, why would he do this, knowing that you know if it ever got publicly disclosed, it would only embarrass the guy he wanted to see win the election and presumably get reelected. It's a great question. I think you know in, in a lot of foreign policies, there's contradictory things. You know, when I was in the Obama administration, we promoted democracy and promoted our security, and sometimes those clashed in places, and um, sometimes they were consistent. And I would think I would say this is is that too. Putin likes the fact that Trump has polarized us and and pulled us off the, you know, the international board, and that's all good for Russia's interests. He also is playing a longer game in terms of you know, there's a lot of people. In Russia, I don't know about Putin personally, but you know, I read and interact with lots of Russians uh, in different ways that think that that Trump is done and he's, you know, they've got to move on. But I don't know the answer to that. I think it's important to to flag it. Ambassador, what do you think the likelihood is that an operation like this would take place without Putin? knowing about it. We're, what's been reported is that it's the handiwork of a, a unit called uh, Unit 29155, an, an arm of the Russian military, of, of the GRU, Russian Military Intelligence. By the way, the same unit that was linked to the poisoning in Salisbury, England of uh, Sergei Skripal, the former GRU officer. But do you think something like this would happen without Putin's knowledge? I think it's unlikely. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's always the alibi, right? Uh, Putin's in control of all the good things that happen and is not in control of bad things. It's not out of the question, though. I want to be clear about that. Uh, it is not a unitary state. There is real rivalries between different groups. And in particular, I would say, and I'm going to do this in broad brush, there is a there is a clash between two different groups around Putin, uh, one that leans more Western, thinks that, you know, in the long term, uh, Russia's long-term economic interests are better uh, served by having a better relationship with us. And then there's this circle around him. They're called the Siloviki, right? The hardliners, uh, mostly in intelligence, uh, SVR, GRU, although FSB, although those three groups also have their rivalries amongst themselves, by the way, that want to isolate Putin, that want to poison relations between the United States and Russia, and most certainly among, 
you know, people that follow these things closely in Russia, that was one of the explanations for the assassination attempt against Skripal. That has been one of the explanations for the successful and tragic assassination, for instance, of Boris Nemtsov uh, inside Russia. So I, I can't evaluate those. It wouldn't surprise me. But, you know, I guess I tend to lean that when it comes to intelligence matters, Putin's pretty well-informed guy. He is a former intelligence officer himself. And to go rogue on Putin with something as audacious as this, that's a pretty risky thing you're doing. You know, there could be really pretty big consequences doing that. So I, I tend to think he would have known, but it's not out of the realm of the possibility that he didn't. So taking a step back, I mean, this does seem to be a case of Putin emboldened, pushing the limits of what he could get away with to disrupt and make life difficult for the United States, if that's in fact the case. What should we expect going forward, particularly as we go into the election season, given what they did the last time in 2016, what do you see as the possibilities for this election and Russian interference? Well, uh, we wrote a big report on it at Stanford talking about what they did and what should be done. And I'm, I'm not going to try to say, you know, we had 43 recommendations, uh, some of which have been accepted, by the way. So that's good news. And a lot of our recommendations, by the way, were uh, policy recommendations for local actors here, Facebook and Twitter, not just in Washington. Uh, but you didn't ask me that question. You asked me what Putin might do. And I would just say two things. One is he's a really smart guy. And so to assume he'll just go back to the old playbook, I am always raising suspicion of that. Uh, I suspect other copycats to do that, uh, not Putin. I think what we should be more worried about is actions, and by the way, there were some of these in 2016, but it may be even more so this time around, are actions that don't help a candidate, in this case it would be Trump again, but that undermine the validity of the elections more broadly, that call into question whether these elections were free and fair. And so when you have interventions, when you have things happening that are exposed, it raises doubt about you know, uh, whether this was a free and fair election. And that's cheap and easy to do, by the way. And, and the way we're so wired, polarized, and on both sides, by the way. I, I, everybody, everybody talks about how if Trump loses the election, he's not gonna leave the White House. Uh, I think the Trump folks should worry about if he wins a close election, that his opponents might not accept it. And they might think that it was stolen. And if mm -hmm. they can point to some marginal tweets uh, of, of Putin, you know, amplifying some right wing platform, uh, they'll say, well, this is proof that this was not a free and fair election. So that's what I think. I think it's undermining the integrity more generally. And I would say, look for it in the social media sphere. But I would also I also worry about Election Day and some weird hacking, pretty easy to do. You know, 100 names that were there disappear, probably has a very marginal impact on the actual outcome of the voting. But man, you can you can imagine what kind of story that will be, and the 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 end game of that story will be to undermine the perception that we had a free and fair election, and that of course is on top of all the tremendous challenges we already have, even without the Russians or Chinese or Iranians being involved. I'm really worried about a lot of Americans perceiving us, maybe accurately, maybe inaccurately, that the election in November will not be free and fair. So Ambassador McFall, 
how do you, I mean, here's the $64,000 question. How do you stop Putin? I mean, he's going to be around for a while. And, you know, and Trump may be gone. It might be Joe Biden um, in the White House. I mean, diplomatic complaints and, you know, a few more sanctions are not going to make a difference. So how do you make him uh, conclude that it is not in his interest to do these things? Well, I would say two things. One, I actually do think pushback has succeeded. So uh, again, I wouldn't I wouldn't paint it in just in black and white terms. Uh, I think it was right for Angela Merkel and Barack Obama and everybody else to strengthen NATO. And I applaud the Trump administration that continued that process. NATO's eastern flank is stronger today than it was in 2014. That's good. Uh, I think it was right to put sanctions in place in 2014 and to re-up them. I applaud the Trump administration for doing that. That has caused uh, people, and I know some of them personally, to suffer. Uh, that is part of deterrence. That is real. I think more assistance to Ukraine is a part of that. And I could, you know, more resilience for our uh, electoral security and all infrastructure security uh, in the digital world, that should be a part of it. And I could go through a long list, but it, one thing, one there is not a silver bullet here. You know, this is this is like the Cold War. This is going to be a long struggle, as you said, Dan. It's going to take decades. People forget that the Cold War went for a long, long time. But you got to have a you got to have a kind of a grand strategy that everybody's mm-hmm. agreeing to. And right now, I would say we don't have that. We have a a real divide in the administration uh, between Trump and almost everybody else. That makes it hard to keep that strategy in place. And and then secondly, I would say there's obviously a growing division between us and our democratic partners, and some of them are allies in Europe because of Trump's actions, right? I I was just on a webinar with some Europeans this morning, some NATO members, some not. And, you know, you can't like keep berating those, uh, those allies and threatening to pull out of uh, NATO and putting tariffs and sanctions on them, that is not a long-term strategy for containing Putin's Russia. So that's part of it as well, to think more strategically about the transatlantic relationship. I should ask, since you mentioned the election, are you um, at all uh, helping out the Biden campaign with your insights into U.S.-Russia policy? Uh, no, I'm not a formal advisor. You know, I got lots of friends in the uh, Biden team. <laughs> okay. We just like to have uh, full disclosure on skullduggery about where everybody's coming from. I think from. that is right. I'm glad you're doing that. And <laughs> because of my relationship with NBC, in fact, uh, I uh, right. chose to do that rather than to work with those folks. Got but it, got it. But well, do listen, I know we, them um, well? And do I do I hope that they are listening to me? And just <laughs> right now, the answer to that is yes. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, some of their uh, top people do come on skullduggery from time to time, so we can hope that they're listening to it as well. Ambassador, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, always great uh, to hear what you have to say on this matter, and uh, we'll be back to you as uh, as this unfolds. Thank you, guys. Appreciate being on. We now have with us Thomas Ridd, who is a uh, information security professor at Johns Hopkins and the author of the book Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare. Tom, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Hi. 
So great to chat with you. I remember when we first met, I believe in London back several years ago when we were both hot on the trail uh, trying to understand what the Russians did in the 2016 election, which of course has gotten lots of attention, the hacks, the social media disinformation campaigns. But your book basically shows that what the Russians were doing in 2016 has a long rich history going back to the earliest days of the Soviet Union. The phrase is active measures. Tell us what you discovered in your research on active measures and how it informs what we have seen the Russians do in more recent years. And maybe you can start, Tom, by just telling our audience what an active measure is. Yeah. So, yeah, when the uh, an active measure is the historical term of art that the uh, Soviet intelligence community came up with in the early 1960s to describe disinformation, to describe influence operations, deceiving an adversary, sometimes by leaking documents, sometimes by amplifying existing divisions. And they discovered that disinformation is not a very helpful term because it focuses the mind, that was one reason, on the distinction between false and true information. And uh, what active measures are really about is activating, if you like, an emotional effect. And whether something is true or false is really a secondary consideration. And uh, take us back to the earliest days of these kinds of tactics that, as Mike mentioned in his question, the Soviets used in their earliest days. Well, there's so much. I mean, I had to. Uh, the book start begins in uh, with the uh, trust, a famous operation that the Cheka, the early uh, predecessor organization to KGB, pulled off in the 1920s. And the trust, the trust was a fake monarchist organization that the young Soviet Union pretended existed in in the Soviet Union, in order to lure monarchists, counter-revolutionaries, either back into the Soviet Union to arrest them, or in order to simply paralyze them by telling them, listen, you're not in touch with what's happening at home. You're sort of far away, but there's this native resistance forming, and they will take care of the counter-revolution. So just, just hang in there. It was a very clever ploy. And this continued throughout the um, first decades of the Soviet Union. Tell us some of the other examples that you came across in this. Yeah. So, you know, I'm German. I'm born and raised in Germany. And uh, for me, one of the great discoveries, uh, initially, I thought, OK, I don't speak Russian, although I worked a lot with Russian documents and translators and machine translation. But I don't speak Russian. And initially, I thought that would be a major problem. But it appeared very quickly understood that German is even more helpful for this subject, because the Stasi, the East German uh, state security and its foreign intelligence apparatus, HVA, were really masters at disinformation, at active measures, when, especially when they targeted West Germany, because they spoke the language and they were culturally close to their target. So one of the operations that played out in Germany was one that I think that was just stunning to me. And it was an amplification of anti-Semitic feelings, essentially the creation of an anti-Semitic hate wave that swept across Germany and West Europe in early 1960. And it was engineered by KGB in a way that is just, it's an extraordinary story that really captures a morale that uh, 
we are struggling with today. And that is, what if you create a fake emotional reaction that is actually real? Because people, actual anti-Semites came out and, uh, you know, smeared swastikas on synagogues and cemeteries because of a trigger that came from across the Iron Curtain. So was the anti-Semitism actually fake or was it real? And the answer is, it was very difficult to tell. And a lot of it was real. So real, but kind of stoked and amplified. And so what the Russians, I guess, have been so good at is exploiting and kind of tapping into existing divisions in societies that have that produce a huge emotional reaction. And of course, we have seen that in this country in uh, 2016. And then again, I think uh, there's evidence of it of it happening in our midterms as well, particularly with the Russians exploiting racial divisions in this country. Yeah, but but I think the, the temptation here is is far more insidious and far harder to counter than you would think at first glance, because the temptation is not just to say, okay, the the temptation is to interpret what is happening as a foreign interference operation. So let's ha- let's go back to the 60s example for a moment. What happened at the time is that some conservatives in Germany, the defense minister at the time, Hans, uh, Franz Josef Strauss, pointed to Eastern influences obliquely at first. He sort of basically said that this is not real, that this is provoked from across the from you know the East. And a lot of people in Germany said, "Wait a minute, what are you talking about? We actually have a problem with anti-Semitism." Now, this is 14 years after the Holocaust. Of course, Germany has a problem with anti-Semitism. So the the instinct of a lot of people in Germany was to say, you know, we own this. We have to fix this problem. We have to get our anti-Semitic uh, trauma and tendencies here under control. And I think that was the right the right reaction. If they would have said, oh, this is all engineered from the East. We don't have a problem. It's actually imposed on us. Then I think Germany would have failed. You know- One of the things that really uh, leapt out at me in reading your book is just how major an investment the Soviets made over the years in active measures, how central it was to their national security strategy, as it were. And uh, you point out that by 1985, active measures had also reached peak bureaucratic performance, Soviet active measures then had an annual budget between $3 billion and $4 billion, an estimate that CIA analysts called conservative. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to get a breakdown of that estimate. I don't have a good breakdown. It may include large media, probably does include large media organizations like Radio Moscow, for example, which of course then blurs the question of what is an active measure as opposed to what is just run-of-the-mill propaganda. But clearly, yes, they escalated uh, throughout the 70s into the 80s in a way that I think we just don't appreciate. So I was going to say, because look, people on the left will point out, you know, wasn't the CIA doing much of the same thing under the banner of uh, political warfare, as the agency would have referred to it? How do you distinguish between the kinds of activities the CIA was doing, uh, secretly funding various foundations and journalistic organizations and other think tanks from and pushing America? American messaging versus what the Soviets were doing? That's a tough question. 
And, you know, I'm sure you also sometimes got that pushback. Well, aren't we just doing the same thing as, this, as the Russians are doing in 2016, for example? And I felt I, need to ta I needed to tackle this, uh, in my view, rather naive response. Because what you see when you look closely at the historical record is that, yes, CIA was doing very similar operations in the 1950s, but then retreated and de-escalated. I mean, even in the 1950s, when CIA put out a lot of forgeries and was really quite aggressive in Berlin, they never went as far as stoking anti-Semitism. So they even then they had moral boundaries. And by the way, the anti-Semitic example, if I may use it just one last time, even Stasi, even you know one of the most ruthless state security organizations ever to exist on the planet, didn't go there. Even Stasi, because it's the head of its foreign intelligence service, Markus Wolf, had a Jewish uh, family member. Even they said, we were not going there. This is on UKGB. So I think it's important to understand that KGB escalated in a way in resourcing, you know, just prioritizing disinformation. And of course, taking off, taking the gloves off in a way that CIA just never did. Thomas, I want to ask you about the effectiveness of these uh, active measures historically. And I want to ask you about one particularly pernicious example called Operation Denver, which you write about where the Soviets tried to get into our kind of information bloodstream that AIDS, HIV AIDS, was essentially concocted by the U.S. government in a biological weapons lab, I guess, at Fort Detrick, Maryland. And that did get some traction. What was the impact of that? What was the purpose of it? And what was the impact? The, the purpose question is easier to answer than the impact question. So this uh, myth that you, the U.S. Army, the U.S. government created AIDS was designed for a very specific reason, namely to distract from the um, offensive biological weapons programs that and chemical weapons programs that were underway in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, and they were producing, you know, anthrax, or and not just anthrax, but many uh, biological weapons at industrial scale. Uh, they never Nixon canceled the American program. They didn't uh, cancel. They escalated there as well, and used some of these weapons in Southeast Asia. So the AIDS myth was a counter flanking maneuver, if you like. Um, against that uh, use of weapons. So the Soviet Union, of course, um, collapses uh, in uh, 1991, and um, a new Russian Federation is born, headed since 2000 by a former KGB agent. But how do you explain the continuity in active measures from the Soviet era to the Russian Federation? That's a very difficult question. Um, there appears to be continuity in the sense that we see some of the similar tradecraft at, at work beginning in about 2013 again. And we, we still see some uh, operations in the, in the late 1990s that I did look at in the book. But of course, there's this rift. There's this, there are a couple of gap years that are hard to cover. So one of the difficult questions that I don't answer in the book because I can't answer it, but it's an interesting question to bring up, is why do we see predominantly GRU military intelligence operations today, while back in the day in the Cold War, it was what today is SVR, the first chief directorate of KGB in you know the forest, uh, Yasenevo uh, by Moscow, that was running active measures. 
So why is this, how about this organizational shift in prioritizing here? That's a difficult one to answer, actually. Thomas, you mentioned the GRU. In researching this book, I guess, you, you did a, a lot of sleuthing. And I understand that you actually were able to reach out to Guccifer 2.0, who was a, a GRU or a Russian military intelligence officer posing as Guccifer 2.0, who was behind the WikiLeaks hack in 2016. Tell us that story. H- how did you make contact with Guccifer 2.0, and what was that interaction like? I mean, Guccifer 2.0 was a front account that you know a specific GRU unit started using in mid-June, so you know, four years, exactly four years ago now. And for a couple of us who were watching Russian hacking operations up close at the time, it was pretty obvious that this is a Russian um, intelligence front from day one, literally. So I remember around that time, literally today, end of June 2016, I was beginning to write up the story of what happened for an article that then appeared in late July. And in the while I was writing, I thought to myself, okay, why not just reach out to these guys? Because it's still quite easy to do that. They are actually responsive. Um, and I did. And I I asked them for the... Um, I tried to get some responses on whether they actually gave files to WikiLeaks, not expecting something truly interesting, but, you know, why not try? So they responded. I remember walking home in London, DMing with them while I was walking through uh, Clerkenwell, and it was a slightly bizarre experience, I have to say. <laughs> wow. What, were they, what was the conversation like? Whether they gave documents to WikiLeaks, and they said, you know, yes, they did. Um, then they uh, asked me whether I would be going to a specific conference in London where they were planning to present something, which actually happened in a weird way a couple of weeks later. Wait a, wait a second. Guccifer 2.0, somebody posing as him or representing themselves as him, showed up in London? Uh, yeah, no, it was obviously a remote delivery and somebody read out something. And um, it was not as interesting as you would have, would, would have expected. But it was kind of weird that they were trying to establish their hacker credentials at the time. I later continued that DM when uh, after immediately after the no, actually in October, because I was writing about this again and, and tried ask them to reveal the code name because clearly they made history, what the code name was for the operation, but they never responded to that text. Do we know what the code name was? No. <laughs> so look, obviously, a lot of people are now focused on what the Russians or other foreign adversaries may try to do in this election year, having studied as closely as you have what they did in 2016 and what they've done historically over the years. What's your best sense of what we should expect from the Russians in terms of active measures this election year? You know, before I say and obviously, as somebody who writes histories, I can't really talk about the future. But before I sort of go there, let me just, if we go back to 2016 and reassess what happened, I think it's important to just understand that in some ways, in my mind, we have not done a very good job of understanding the different impact vectors of this operation. So, for example, the way the special counsel's office at the Robert Mueller, uh, Robert Mueller's team has structured their indictments, I think gave too much significance, too much weight to the Internet Research Agency. Internet, you know, the trolling and the social media interference was not as important as a lot of people think. And they think it was so important because it was the first indictment primarily. There are other reasons, too, but that was one important reason. So I think 
we just have to understand the entire social media interference angle was nowhere nearly as effective as even the special counsel's office assessed. And I'm happy to go into detail on data if you're interested, but it's in the- uh, Explain very briefly why you say that. I mean, let's make an example. When the when Twitter, but also Facebook took down accounts um, or took down the ads that IRA had sponsored, they froze the follow account of many of these accounts in time in August 2017. Now, ne the next question is, okay, if we're interested in election interference, we're not interested in the nine months after the election, because it's a distraction. We're interested in what happened before the election, not after. So if you disaggregate the figures, then, for example, the famous number of 126 million impressions that Russian uh, IRA content received on Facebook, it's a figure from Mark Zuckerberg, that figure shrinks to about one third, about 34% if you only look at what happened before the election, not after the election. And a similar thing applies to Twitter followers of fake accounts. They're also frozen in August, uh, in late 2017. So how big were they actually before the election? Answer, you know, much, much smaller in almost all cases. Um, why did Mueller not, you know, walk us in a more thorough way uh, through the uh, limitations here of the data? So then, Thomas, are you suggesting that there were other aspects of the Russian disinformation campaign that were that had a much bigger impact, say the the hacks of the DNC or the Podesta emails, or that the whole thing has been somewhat exaggerated in terms of its importance and, and impact? Yeah. So I'll give you, you know, in hindsight, when I was going back and I wrote that chapter at the end of my project, the final chapter to have the maximum amount, maximum amount of time between the events and me writing about it, the uh, DNC hack chapter. So there's one thing in there that I really, I'm really kicking myself that I didn't discover it earlier. And that is related to your question to the Podesta leaks. It turns out that the very first leak that became public in the whole operation came public on the 8th of June already, so before Gucci for Two even emerged through DC leaks. The very first leak was sourced from the Podesta inbox. It was not from the DNC, but it was from the Podesta inbox. They didn't say that at the time, but we know, we can prove that. Uh, data is in the book. Second thing that I found even more disturbing to find out later is the first Gucci for Two leaks, um, there were five specific Word documents in the very first leak. They were, they claimed the GRU claimed on, via Gucci for Two that they were taken from Hillary Clinton's server in the State Department. Now, there's three lies in there. One, they were not taken from Hillary Clinton's server from Hillary Clinton in the first place. They were not taken from the State Department. They were not taken from even the time when she was Secretary of State. And to add another one is the document was not secret as they claimed it was never classified in the first place. They forged all that information. How do we know this? Because it was also taken from John Podesta's inbox. We could have, crafty researchers could have found that out on that day or shortly thereafter, but certainly the State Department should have pointed it out and they didn't. Why? I don't know. So what do you make of that? I think what I make of that is obviously we all expected the um, winner in November to be, you know, Hillary Clinton. A lot of people did, not all of us. And uh, as a result, I think, you know, 
many people were complacent. They thought, okay, let's just, I, by the time it had become a big story, they're like, okay, this is not going to move the needle. And, uh, and they had become complacent. Now, did it move no, no, the they, needle? Yeah. No, leave aside whether it moved the needle. What's interesting to me about that is, first of all, we saw from the dump of all the emails, the first dump of the DNC emails in July and then in starting in October, the Podesta emails, as far as we could see at the time, they were all authentic emails. They had not been doctored. They had not been forged. They were real material. You're pointing out that early on, before all that started, there was forgery going on by the Russians. So there was almost there was forgery in the sense that the front the front organizations were fake, Christopher Two and DC Leaks, yeah, and obviously that's part of you know the fake. And there was there was some modest framing forgery going on as well, concerning for example the secret nature of one of these documents that in fact was not secret, and the provenance of the document was you know pretended they right. pretended to be came from somewhere else. No, but all the files that came from WikiLeaks at least that's what it appears, um, are genuine and were not doctored with. So I actually, I have a question about that, which is, do you believe, and are you suggesting that in the case of the WikiLeaks and the DNC hack and the Podesta emails, that because they were written about by the American news media in a little bit of a frenzy, and we were part of that, of course, that that gives it more legitimacy, gives it more impact than than social media posts, which are just, you know, shared by average people. There's no doubt that mainstream or any press coverage, but the bigger, the better, obviously, is the thing that matters here. That was always true in active measures. It's still true in 2020. Social media, yes, of course, is, that's happening as well, but it's just not as impactful as having something covered in, you know, on CNN or The Times or Fox or something. And then the follow-up question, of course, is the ethical question. I mean, I remember well when, you know, Mike was getting these emails and I was his editor and we were working on those stories. And, you know, the kind of knee-jerk reaction was, well, it's authentic. These are true emails. These things did happen. They're not being denied. So what is, in your mind, the responsibility of the media in a situation like this when, you know, in a sense you are doing the bidding of a foreign intelligence service. So, you know, I have stories in the book where the, this ethical dilemma was posing itself way more sharply than it did in 2016. Um, you know, CIA just amazingly reviewed my book last Friday, I saw, it came, to, came to my attention, and they talk about that story in their review as well, because they get it, how explosive that story was. Uh, did you want me to look, relay the story? Yeah, sure, sure. So the story is that KGB ran a disinformation operations about, they basically got their hands on a secret American war plan to use for Germany, how to essentially fight guerrilla war in Germany in the case of a Red Army invasion from behind enemy lines. And this is in West Germany, not East Germany, like in a NATO country. So the Soviets got their hands on this plan through a spy, American spy, Robert Lee Johnson, and then said, okay, this guy has been caught our spy but we can still use this material for disinformation, for active measures, because it's crazy. It's an amazing war plan, a real amazing war plan. So they surfaced it in uh, Italy first, um, and actually in Norway first, but it, the story didn't catch on. It 
And when you say surfaced, you mean they leaked it to the news media there? Exactly. They mailed it to a far-left newspaper anonymously from Rome, but they didn't really make a big story out of it. So then they said, okay, this is not working as intended. Let's spice it up with a forgery. Let's make it more controversial through a forgery, which they did. So they put in this detail that, you know, release authority for nuclear weapons is now with local theater commanders, which obviously is a kind of crazy thing to happen. So then they surfaced it again and mailed it again anonymously from Rome to Der Spiegel and Der Stern in Germany, the two weekly newspapers from Hamburg. One highbrow, one lowbrow. Stern is sort of more lowbrow. And Stern fell for it. Stern you know, ran the story as framed by KGB. But Der Spiegel didn't. Der Spiegel said, okay, let's, just, let's reveal this as a disinformation operation. And not just that, let's report out the fact where this whole thing came from. Let's reveal the spy that gave this document to the Soviets, which is what they did. It was an amazing piece of journalism. But now the crazy thing comes into play. Are you following me so far? Yeah, yep. It's a great story. So the crazy thing is what KGB does next. Because KGB says, okay, we have been caught by Der Spiegel, which revealed our source. So what are we going to do? Drop this whole thing? Because it's it's working now. It's kind of cool to have all, all this press coverage. So they said, okay, let's reward Stern, the lowbrow German weekly, by giving them even more explosive documents about nuclear, American nuclear targeting against West German targets, NATO country targets. But but of course, they now did it basically knowing that the journalists who receive the data actually know that it's a KGB document. But they also knew, because Spiegel had reported the story so well, that it's real. So they had this dilemma, this or this opportunity. They said, okay, we have these real documents now. You know they're coming from us, KGB. I mean, they didn't say they were KGB, but they just mailed it again. And Der Stern had that ethical dilemma in front of them. Should we publish something that is extremely newsworthy, uh, but knowing we know that it comes from a foreign intelligence agency and that it's real? And what would you have done? I think I would have done what they did um, and namely publish. But but saying at the same time that, that you're, you know, potentially, I mean, revealing the likely source at the same time. Let me take you back to my question about what we should expect in this election year, because there's intense debate about whether the United States is prepared for another Russian active measures this year and how far it could go. We've got a particular controversy right now about mail-in voting, which a lot of Democrats and progressives are pushing for. And the Trump administration, led by Attorney General William Barr, is pushing back, saying, no, this is an invitation to fraud. And what would stop a foreign government such as the Russians from uh, creating fake absentee ballots on their own and introducing fraudulent votes into the system. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I think it's probably quite difficult to move the needle in terms of actual forgeries and mail-in ballots or, you know, even hacking voting machines that are being used by people who go voting physically. It's not probably impossible, but it's pretty hard to succeed in that fashion by for the Russian for Russian operators. But they also have a second vector of attack, so to speak. And that is by simply appearing to mess with the 
outcome because they know that the whole conversation about disinformation is so big, is occupying so much space in this, and is also so highly polarized in this country right now, politicized in this country right now, that essentially the perception of, or if you like, the disinformation about disinformation is the more powerful weapon that they have in my view. Yeah, my... yeah that's, that's what I was going to ask you about, because it seems to me that particularly with a president, Donald Trump, who has shown a proclivity for doing whatever he can to undermine the legitimacy of uh, our institutions and uh, goes on and on about fraud, that all the Russians would have to do is give him enough ammunition to do that again. Yeah. If I were sitting in, you know, the Kremlin or advising Putin or whatever, somebody in charge at SVR or whoever is we're looking at here, I mean, I have no doubt they also make a strategic consideration. There's a higher than 50% chance that the next president will be Joe Biden. And if that is the case, there's a very high chance that his people will be super upset with Russia because of 2016 still. So there's, if you, if you essentially, you know, why antagonize them a second time? Because ultimately, is it really worth it? It's a, you know, I'll just say it. It's really difficult to do even more harm to the United States than what Trump is already doing. So you just, you know, let him continue wreak havoc against the institutions of state. And, uh, what, you know, why, why antagonize the next administration even more? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess bottom line is if, if the Russian primary goal is to sow discord and dissension within the United States, they've got Donald Trump doing their bidding. They don't need to weigh in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's sad to watch. But I do uh, want to ask you, because we are in this country, as you know, experiencing a great amount of, of turmoil and difficulty in the wake of the killing of, of George Floyd. And there is a lot of anger that has spilled into the streets, a lot of division, disunity. So would the Russians be able to help themselves from, from exploiting that, even if it's a kind of a, a, kind of a lower level of campaign? You know, by that relates back to an earlier observation here, that is by exaggerating the impact of the 2016 social media interference, we have created a marketplace for contractors in Russia, but beyond Russia also in third countries. We, we you know, look at all the Facebook and Twitter takedowns over the past couple of months. A lot of people are watching this and thinking, yeah, this seems to work. I mean, probably overstating the effect, but it doesn't matter because, you know, you still, it's not that expensive to build up that capability. So I have no doubt there will be people trying to exploit the uh, Black Lives Matter movement or the Antifa narrative, for example, that's out there. But I think the temptation for us uh, in the United States is to essentially distinguish between the influence operation, which is, you know, in my that would be my default expectation, that it's only a minor fringe phenomenon, that the main situation we're looking at is homemade and real. Yeah. Because, I mean, just to put it really provocatively and bluntly, weak democracies blame their problems on outside forces. That's what's happening in Russia. Strong democracies own their problems and fix them. Well, that is a uh, wise observation to uh, end up on, and um, uh, I appreciate the insights. Uh, the book is Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare. Thomas Ridd, thanks for joining us.
Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks to the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, and political scientist and author Thomas Ridd for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.